This is John Burden, and these are my reminiscences. My lifelong adventure with the horn, that is to say the French horn, not tenor horn, alpine horn, or in fact any other wind instrument, which is usually named such, especially in the USA. Yes, my life's adventure started, as with many musicians, at school. I had just moved up to the senior school of Trent College in Derbyshire, where, in the junior opera, I had been having piano lessons with the music master's wife. I started learning piano when I was six. I had a reasonable treble voice and a good ear, and the music master, Mr. Bellringer, well named, suggested I try the horn, as there was none in the school orchestra. A courtois horn in my hands was put, and with no guidance, I tried to produce a sound. Of course, I rammed the mouthpiece into my top lip and teeth and blew. Nothing, only a rushing mighty wind. It took about two weeks before I made a sound resembling a note. A horn teacher from Nottingham was produced, Mr. Ears Whitehead, and we had a great time trying to progress. I used to go to his house for lessons sometimes when the school permitted the outing. Alas, I was not taught anything about production. Anyway, I did take to the elusive friend and I never forgot my first concert. Debris is pretty sweet with those few little horn passages. Subsequently, after a year or two, the family moved to Tibetan in Devon. I suppose I started playing at 12 or 13 and changed schools when 14 to Blundells, which was situated in Tibetan. R.D. Blackmore, who wrote Lorna Doon, went to the same school. It was Peter Blundell who founded the school in 1603 and it is featured in the book. Anyway, the music master, J.W.E. Hall, was delighted to have a horn player. He was also great encouragement. He arranged for me to have every other Monday off school to go to Torquay to have lessons with Andrew Fisk, the second horn in the Torquay Municipal Orchestra. Those are great happy Mondays, but alas, again, I was taught nothing about production. And they used simply to play studies with me and just correct wrong notes and time values. We had many a laugh and giggle all the same. James Hall, affectionately known as Jazz Hall, conducted many very ambitious choral works. By the way, he used to career around the school rounds in an old motorbike and sidecar, rather like the Nazis and Gestapo shown in war films. I particularly remember playing the horn part in Brown's Song of Destiny. When 15 plus, I moved to a sort of sixth form and for once really enjoyed school and was allotted a number of periods in school hours to practice. School certificate was a bit of a joke as I was so bad at most subjects, but I did manage to pass French and music with a distinction. This enabled me to press on with my pleas to go to music college. My dad was not keen. As a clergyman, he wished me to follow in his footsteps, but mum supported me, as did Jazz Hall, and eventually, dad was persuaded to arrange a consultation with the country's leading horn player, Aubrey Brain, to seek his opinion and advice. So the trip to London was arranged, and I particularly remember struggling through the mid-sunlight stream nocturne. 
Aubrey said to come to the RAM straight away. So I was 16, with just French and music under my academic belt. I went to the big city with a room in a guest house in Highgate and the 27 bus to transport me to the academy. At the academy, of course, I met Dennis Brain and we became very good friends. He had only started playing for about one year, so initially we were on the same level, but he soon shot ahead. Though we did share the first horn seat at rehearsals and concerts. Henry Wood, called Timber, was the orchestral conductor and trainer. Dennis and I both did the conductor's course, where Timber was the chief instructor with Ernest Reed doing most of the course. We both learned piano, I with Miles Foggin, whom I shall mention again later. Now I forget who Dennis was with. In any case, we both moved into second study onto the organ. He with George Cunningham and I with C.H. Trevor. Dennis came on holiday with me to Tiverton. It was good fun, but I shall never forget the interminable long notes that goes for both of us. A milestone in his life is his debut with Aubrey at Queen's Hall, playing Brandenburg One with the Adolf Busch chamber players, which I attended. That was great stuff. To develop my conducting, I got a number of students together as a small chamber orchestra. First of all, just strings. These are like the Capriol Suite, Al Gore and Tchaikovsky string serenades. And then added wind to play all 20 movements of the Handel Water Music, Bart B. Minor Suite, the Handel Organ Concerto with Dennis Payne as serviced, and also the Little F Trumpet Brandenburg Concerto with Sidney Ellison as serviced. Now, Dennis and a newcomer to me, Andrew McGavin, for the horns. Leonard, Dennis's brother, Ovo, Gareth Morris flute, Marjorie Labors and Felix Cock and other violin players of note. I still have a poster of the Burden Chamber Orchestra, believe it or not. This was not to last, though. The war started in 1939. The REM closed down for a number of months, but reopened as no bombs had yet been dropped. But Aubrey Brain had been evacuated with the BBC Symphony Orchestra out of London. For a while, I enjoyed Charles Gregory, first horn of the LPO, and then Alan Hyde, first horn of the LSO. Now, when I first went to the academy, I was a good horn player, about 15 or 20 minutes, because I dug into my top lip with horn held high. It was both these two new teachers who suggested I lowered the angle and tried to reduce top lip pressure and develop face muscles. I would never really criticize Aubrey's teaching and help, but he was not so hot on this aspect of production. Dennis played with great pressure on his top lip and actually developed a corn thereon, but his flexibility came from a looser lower lip. I tend very slightly to dig into the lower lip, which can get sore after a long blow. Now, Alan Hyde, in particular, introduced me to the exercises from Vienna, used by the famous Karl Stiegler, the first horn of the Richard Strauss era, before his nephew, Gottfried Freiburg, took over. Alan also gave Jim Brown, that's Big Jim, these exercises, which proved part foundation of our later successes. 
It was now getting near call-up time, 18 with the age. Dennis had volunteered to join the RF Central Band at Uxbridge, and I was advised to do the same before being called up. Now, at this time, the LSO was very busy. Alan Hyde was called up with the commission, and Michael Graydon moved up to First Horn. They were in need of a second horn for a tour of Britain and invited me to go with them. Also, horns were needed for a film session with the film Dangerous Moonlight, which featured the famous Warsaw Concerto. On these, our first taste of sessions, I again met Andrew and Gavin. Prior to this time, for many weeks, bombing had started and I was always either in an air raid shelter, tube station, or in the fortified cellar of my digs during the nights or during the day, riding my bicycle to the academy, avoiding bomb craters and tram lines, and hoping to take slightly different routes some days. Anyway, I dutifully asked the warden of the academy for permission to go on tour, but was flatly refused. So, of course, I went on tour and have never heard from the R.A.M. to this day, the one-time Ross Scholar. It was on the strength of my doing this tour and one other that the LSO invited me back in 1947 after I was demobbed. The first concert of the tour was at Watford Town Hall with Henry Wood conducting. And guess what was the first piece in the programme? My first appearance with the professional orchestra. Help, Fidelio Overture. Wow. Fortunately, Timber knew me from the academy. The first over was the famous Eddie Whittaker, and he warmly welcomed me, saying in his North Country accent, you'll just play a lad like you do at the academy. That tour was tough because of one night stands and always crowded trains with troops, always on the move and all sorts of people traveling, mostly at night. For the second tour, I took a lilo to find spots on the floor to try to sleep in compartment or corridor. Benham Wozevich was usually the pianist, with either Tchaikovsky, Beethoven Emperor, or Ratmanov concertos. Looking back, it is incredible how badly he would play after all-night poker sessions. Of course, he could play accurately, but he would just splash his way through. Audiences didn't seem to know or care. It was always a release from the war to go to a concert. They were always packed. Mark Hamburg and Pushnoff were also splashes in those days. I had applied to the RAF Central Band and soon I was to join Dennis, Norman Delmar and various members of famous string quartets who made up the RAF Orchestra, which was formed in addition to the band, Griller, Hirsch, Martin, Grinke, etc. While on the subject of string quartets, by the way, I could mention the late Peter Shidloff of the Amadeus Quartet was also at Blundell's school soon after me. We occasionally met and compared notes about Jazz Hall. I did not stay at Uxbridge very long, but long enough to take part in the famous National Gallery lunchtime concert with Mara Hess, who used the orchestra for those concerts. Regional command bands were being formed and I was drafted to join Flying Training Command Band to be stationed at Torquay with Gilbert Pinter famous bassoon player at that time as bandmaster. He invited me to be the librarian, which commanded a free extra pence, and a room in the gym gymnasium where I organized a bunk and slept there sometimes. This gym had been commandeered by the RAF for the band. 
Generally, we were billeted in hotels, which had been stripped of all furnishings for the use of airmen. We were able to co-opt Andrew Fisk to join us, as it was his home, as his hometown. So we were a pair of horns. These were quite fun days doing parades and concerts. There was always the morning band practice. Apart from standard band repertoire, Gilbert actually started arranging and composing. The only bad moments were the German hit and run raids when they were bombed, but usually actually machine gunned the streets. I never forget when during one of these raids I was on the town hall steps when a gentleman close to me was simply gunned down. The members of this 25-piece band were from all walks of life. Train driver, civil servant, bank manager, city gentleman, BBC Symphony Orchestra tuba, BBC Variety Orchestra over, some of doubtful trade, and young musicians like myself. It was here that one of the cornet players, shoe manufacturer, showed me his special practice mouthpiece, which had a spring and a hole in the side through which air was diverted if you used any pressure. Harold was a brass band player and devotee of Harry Mortimer, the famous brass band trumpet player. So, in, <clears throat> so ensued my practice with buzzing and non-pressure. My favorite practice room was the coal cellar situated under the gym. I certainly did lots of long notes and non-pressure steeper exercises. Harold Bell, the flute player and bank manager, introduced me to beer drinking, which of course was very cheap in those days. We became very good friends. A few of us played with the Torquay Municipal Orchestra when free, and it was at this time that Gilbert Winter and I concocted Hunter's Moon, which has proved quite a popular piece in our horn repertoire. I played the first performance with this orchestra, which also enjoyed regular BBC broadcasts. After a year or two, we moved to Turnberry Golf Course, which was turned into an airfield in Ayrshire, and thence to Petrie Castle in Dunfermline, where life was again spent doing parades and concerts. I have forgotten to add that all this time I never played the horn on parades. I wangled to play cymbals to protect the delicate embouchure from bumps and potholes in the roads. In Dunfermline, we were close to the Carnegie Trust buildings and park, which supported a library and small concert hall. I managed to organize some modest chamber concerts which are quite well attended. Being near Edinburgh, I was also able to meet Robert Morley Pegg, who was the most enthusiastic horn player and historian of our instrument. Horn players who are interested may have read his book on the horn. He also had a very large collection of old instruments, apart from horns. In Edinburgh at that time, he was an army transport officer, that's called RTO, but we managed to do some playing together. He had spent a number of years in Paris in an opera as four horn, as I remember, before the war. But he had a strange sense of rhythm. A performance of Beethoven's Sextet 81B was arranged at an Edinburgh Music Club. I attempted the first horn part, and what I particularly remember was Robert's playing the second horn part, the second horn solos and the broken chords. He would slow down and play completely at his own tempo, ad-lib, and subsequently, the strings and I would try to come together to keep the momentum going. It was not long before we left Scotland and moved down to St. John's Wood in London. Here again, we were in a famous block of flats which had all furnished, which had, had all furnishings removed. 
We had a cosy bedroom which was nearly utterly destroyed while we were rehearsing in a church hall half a mile away. We had a woof, not knowing where it was at the time. Doodle bugs and B2 rockets were the order of the day then. Terrifying clouds of bombs. It was near the end of the war, but a new band was being formed. Japan was still holding out. The Southeast Asia Command Band, SIAC. I was drafted, not happily, and need hardly add. We were a new band with new personnel, but the same size that I was the only horn player. The conductor was a little hall product, pleasant, but not brilliant, but I managed to wangle librarian's job again, which earned me a bunk in the stern of the Empire Trooper at steerage with the band sergeant, music, and lots of cockroaches. We did not worry unduly about submarines, as all the Germany had frizzled out. Where we sailed from and to was a secret, but we soon surmised it was Liverpool to Bombay. A month long voyage was through the Red Sea, and boy, was it hot. Bombay was a shock, hot and smelly, and the transit camp was under canvas. I shall never forget the large ants which infested the open loos and lip ones, you know what, while performing thereon. Soon we were off to Delhi, where we were in barrack blocks, quite civilised there. Young Indian bearers were keen to do little jobs like cleaning boots and shoes, laundry, derby waller and tea, charwaller. Much curry was demolished in the canteen, and also the daily glass of salt water to replenish what was lost in second perspiration. A few of us were alternative medicine fanatics, and flatly refused inoculations and vaccinations, hence reading in our, in our paybooks. We never suffered any of the prevalent diseases. Some of the lads suffered terribly from those germs. It was very, very hot. 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade and high summer. June was the hottest and the month when normal civilised people moved to the hills in the north. Hyenas and jackals were interesting sounds at night. The lizards were great friends in the music library. We had to shake out boots and shoes in the mornings to be sure of no scorpions, etc. One lovely moment in this hot summer was when the rains came and did they come? Wow! We dashed out of the nude to savour the cool magic. Old Delhi, where we were not where we were not really allowed to go, was and probably still is very poverty stricken and smelly. New Delhi, where the elite lived, was very luxurious with lovely gardens and sweet smelling shrubs. While in Delhi, and then for a while in Calcutta, a few of us were able to organise recitals on all India radio. On one occasion, the air conditioning broke down and the extreme heat threw the piano miles flat and out of tune, and we had to give up. The band gave concerts in isolated camps and airfields and sort of jungle clearances. The great problem with evening concerts, when we had to use lights out of doors, was a variety of insects buzzing around your face in the music. It was very difficult not to breathe flies in nose and mouth. My next job in the morning was to try and clear all the squashed insects from the music. Highlights of India were a trip to Taj Mahal, which has to be actually experienced to be believed, and the study of Indian music. One memorable concert in the elitist world was the Brahms Trio, readings by Ian Forster, and in the second half, real Indian music, which does have something very, very special. 
Our next and last port of call was Singapore, where the band spent its final six months arriving there just after the Japs had left. Once again, some of us organized chamber music and actually played with the Singapore Symphony Orchestra, which comprised nearly every nationality you could imagine, including ex-prisoners of war from Java, some of whom were ex-Jewish members of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, including Simon Goldberg and Robert Pickler, great violinists who had undergone torture but were recovering. One of the outstanding events was a performance of the Eroica with me and two Sikh police band tenor horns, or if you like, monophone players, right-handed, of course, back to front. Their mouthpieces disappeared beneath their huge beard tresses, but it was fun. Sikhs never shave or cut their beards. My buddy doing Neptune was Terence Lovett, who played percussion and was the pianist in our chamber music efforts. Remember, he helped for many years after the war with the Only Street Music Association. I was duly sent back to England to RAF Cramble for the last few weeks before demobilization. And those of us there had to play with the resident band, and I will remember one very frosty morning, very early, standing on the steps of the college and not being able to play a single note. It was so cold. After those five years or so, I was invited to join the LSO on the strength of my playing with them before joining up. At the same time, Tommy Beecham was forming his new Royal Phenomenic Orchestra with Dennis as first horn, and Dennis asked me to join him as second horn. But I chose the LSO. I'll never know if that was the right decision. Alan Hyde was back as first horn, and we had many giggles. He was a terrible giggler. His father, instead, was the famous founder of the Midland Bank. The LSO was not the full-time orchestra it is now. I was often pushed up to play first horn for the modest £2.10. Second horn, incidentally, was £2.05, shillings that is, and the body of strings just got £2 a concert. After a year or so, Alan retired to take up a high-powered maths teaching appointment. During the war, incidentally, he was responsible for the famous predictor, which was a sort of forerunner to radar. Anyway, this prompted the orchestra to invite me to be principal horn, which I gladly accepted. In those days of the late 40s and 50s, the LSO did most of the Hennywood proms and also most of the film sessions. It was after I accepted principal horn that I persuaded Andrew McGavin to get out of the Grenadier Guards band and to join me as third horn. We've remained close friends ever since. As well as film sessions, I played for George Melacrino, an excellent musician, and Eric Robinson, who was the BBC TV sort of musical director. So life was very varied with chamber music as well. I must recall one of my most hair-raising experiences. One was always prepared to do the odd concert without rehearsal, one of our professional hazards. But this one I shall never forget. It was a morning rehearsal for an evening prom a bark program, and of course, Brandenburg number one was on the program. Our second horn, Mark Foster and myself, turned up prepared to have a go for the first time ever. Come the interval, and I asked the conductor, Stafford Robinson, when we were going to rehearse. Oh, very soon, sir. Well, with three minutes to one, and Robbo said, oh, we all know this one. See you this evening. So we were, of course, stupefied and speechless. 
the evening concert was a live broadcast, and I dread to think what it must have sounded like. At least we were not given the boot. During those years, a decade, there were various festivals in Three Fires, Norwich, Leeds, etc. I must not forget the LSO cricket team, by the way. We played British cricket teams, BBC teams, and in, in also at the Three Choirs Festival, we usually had a strings versus wind match. And there was usually this sort of traditional dance match in the pub after all these matches. Anyway, my first trip to Canada and the USA was with the Boyd Neal Orchestra during which I played the Britain Serenade. The LSO had given me permission. Another Britain Serenade performance which sticks out in my memory was one at the Leeds Festival with Peter Pears and our conductor at that time, Joseph Cripps. Because of continual criticism by colleagues that Dennis Brain always played out of tune, I decided to play the prologue and epilogue in tune, much to the Ben's distress. But the listeners enjoyed it. I don't personally disapprove of the out-of-tune natural harmonics, by the way. It is most effective. It is just that program notes and so forth should explain to the audience what it is all about. During those 10 years, a number of us have formed the LSO Chamber Ensemble because we wish to get away from bad conductors and make real music during chamber music broadcasts, festivals and music clubs. We produce brochures, etc. We became quite, became quite busy to the extent that club engagements had to be fixed up many months and even a year in advance. This made it difficult for us to undertake such commitments ahead, not knowing what the orchestra's plans were. Hence, clashes between us and the board of directors, which led, well, led to 12 of us, mainly the principals, resigning and forming our own ensemble. At this point, I should add, but not long before this crisis, I had been invited by Tommy Beecham to be principal of his Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, a memorable appointment in his luxury Grosvenor apartment. As the LSO had given me a position on my demand, I thought it rather unethical to leave and go to Tommy. Oh dear, how certain events do change one's course and mind. Before proceeding to the next decade, I should mention two very different conductors I experienced on nearly alternate concerts over a period of what must have been nearly two years around Festival of Britain time at the early 1950s. For one concert, we would have Malcolm Sargent, who could not abide the sound of horns, always shushing and cringing at horn entries, waiting for crack notes, etc. He would go over a horn entry or passage a few times, waiting for a slip, and if one occurred, ah, oh, Mr. Burden, will it be all right on the night? Will it be safe? He was Dr. Sargent in those days, and hence his nickname, Dr. Durex. Now, after being inhibited by a flash, as he was named, and being afraid to be heard, the next concert would be with Joseph Cripps. By the way, we recorded the Mozart A major violin concerto with Heifetz and Flash conducting. Flash would not let me play all the top Bs, except for the early E.G. sharp B phrase. This was an HMB studio. And if you ever hear that recording, you'll notice how beautifully quiet all the top Bs are, and so well in tune. Even so, the first time I played the B minor mass, Quenian, 
he was so impressed that he actually called me into his sanctum sanctorum to congratulate me. But we had many arguments, nevertheless. Another rare conquest was recording the Dauphiniana F sharp minor suite with those quite dodgy horn parts. The horn quartet was actually invited up to his super flat by the Arbitor to hear the finished product. Anyway, the concerts with Joseph Cripps were the exact reverse of their decided. Joe would draw me out with his big eyes, call me the John and say, play to me. He actually saved my sanity, otherwise Sergeant might have broken me, as he did many others. In fact, it was Joe who insisted to the organisers of Leeds Festival that I played the horn part in the Britain Serenade, and not Dennis, and he also encouraged me to play concertos, which I see very good notices, by the way, and by the critics. Regarding the Britain in Leeds, one critic actually said or wrote, but Dennis Brain played with his usual elf-like ease. When the twelve of us left the LSO, we formed the nucleus of the Symphonia of London, the first orchestra to use the word Symphonia. Gordon Walker, at one time the LSO principal flute, was the manager who also used to organise the film sessions for the LSO, and then, of course, for the Symphonia. This orchestra compared well with the Philharmonia, the string section comprised mostly of members of string quartets. Many, many music scores for many films in the 50s and 60s and some symphonic recordings were accomplished. It was good to note that as soon as the 12 of us left the LSA, the orchestra started to do the things we were urging them to do, and it has gone on from strength to strength ever since. Barry Tuckwell took over from me very speedily and did a lot for the orchestra. How many times have horn players been leading lights in symphony orchestras the world over, as managers and so forth? The Symphonia started a new decade in my life. We changed the name of the LSA Chamber Ensemble to the Virtuoso Ensemble of London, and subsequently performed at music clubs, festivals, and approximately 200 broadcasts. I was a sort of manager and did all the negotiating. While in the LSO, the Goldsboro Orchestra was formed, by the way, and I was the original first horn. Subsequently, it was renamed English Chamber Orchestra, and Arthur Jones and I more or less shared the position according to availability. On one tour, one doesn't forget we both went together. You never have two horn players giggled so much. Disgraceful behaviour, and during concerts too. I had a similar experience with Barry Tuckwell some years ago during a BBC 20th Century Music very rare program. On the actual broadcast, we hardly played a single note through giggling. And yet the conductor never seemed to notice. It was real pipsqueak music, Riffleson. The daily routine in those days was early morning, starting from 9 a.m. film studios, down on the Elstree or Shepperton, and after a day there, West End Theatre. Andrew and I shared two and a half years of West Side Story at a Manchester Theatre, which was fixed by the ECO. BBC and TV shows all had to be fitted in as well. They were busy, hectic days. I haven't mentioned the many backing tracks for pop stars, including the famous Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Four of us did with the Beatles and virtually wrote the horn part for them. After West Side Story, 
and the Dana Brown Science Canteen, and then during me with Max Fridays. One of the most illuminating and thrilling experiences Andrew and I enjoyed was joining Dizzy Gillespie's band at the International Jazz Festival at Antigua, or Joanne the Band. What a musician Dizzy was. Quite madly eccentric, and not a classical player, of course. But his quintet played the most incredible range of dynamics from, well, five, six forties to a whisper. In fact, the huge audience there, I remember you could hear a pin drop, was so breathlessly quiet. Not a rock festival madness. The third horn was Julius Watkins, who was a great horn player and famous for his jazz extemporization, but of course, not for Mozart. Wonderful extemporizing. He had the repertoire of never rarely being with it or there. He would either be late for rehearsal or not there at all. He was nicknamed the Phantom. There are various recordings with him on if you look through the catalogues. Our virtuoso ensemble recorded some music for World Record Club, including Schubert Octet, Beethoven Septet, Mozart Horn Quintet, Schubert Trout, and Brown's Janet Quintet. When Dennis Brain was tragically killed, I took over a few of the Horn Trio dates, that the Violin Horn and Colonel Trio, later formed my own London Horn Trio, playing at clubs, festivals, and broadcasts. A further activity was an experiment with the John Burden Horn Quartet playing jazz arrangements by Eric Weatherall, and of course with the rhythm section. We actually made 10 TV appearances. The quartet comprised the Sinfonia section, myself, Sim Savile, Andrew McGavin, and Jim Burley. During a film session, Robert Masters, the leader of the Uri Dominion's Bath Festival Orchestra, approached me about joining the orchestra for Bath Festival and world tours uh, and recordings. Tim Bryan was to be the second one, and of course, I gladly accepted. So started a decade of recordings and touring with the What a wonderful man and musician. Tim Brown left, and Jimmy Buck Jr., or Andrew, came with me on these tours, including USA, Australia, New Zealand, and of course, all over Europe. The only aspect of these tours which marred the full enjoyment was the inevitable Mozart A major concerto and other high Haydn and Mozart symphonies like the Pensione, Maria Teresa, etc. Halls were usually packed with the audience sitting very close behind the orchestra and being at the back, they would pick the notes out of one's bell. We even played the bed in sextet, over 81B for two horns and string quartet. By the way, the orchestra was renamed Menuhin Festival Orchestra after I think Yehudi had had a disagreement with the festival organizers. Now, it was during this period that I played with John Barry, that's the James Bond films, Henry Mancini, Elmer Bernstein, Jerry Goldsmith, Jeff Love, Ron Goodwin, from the 633 Squadron, Jack Parnell's ITV Orchestra, and so on. There was also the London Concert Orchestra, and of course, deputizing here and there. One of those small world experiences was in Chicago Airport during the Menuhin tour, when there was a tap on my shoulder, it was Hank Mancini. What are you doing here, he said. He's a great musician and gentleman. Also around this time, Miles Foggin, my old piano teacher from the RAM, and then principal of Trinity College of Music, 
He invited me to be Horn Professor because my friend and colleague, Jim Burdett, had passed away. He had been Professor there for many years. This added to my already busy timetable, which took me in good stead when I had to give up playing and in due course was made Principal Lecturer at Trinity. So teaching and examining for Trinity have now been my activities during the last 10 years or so. Another activity is that I found myself taking up the organ again after 40 years or so and trying to organize choirs in a modest sort of way, even composing a few little anthems. My wife and I are both busy teaching. I need to teach piano and I find myself teaching all wind instruments except for oboe and bassoon, which I do not feel sufficiently acquainted with technically. It was during overseas tours, especially Australia and New Zealand, in aeroplanes, hotels, and so forth, I sketched out my horn tutor, horn playing, a new approach, which has now been in circulation for about 20 years. It was published by Patterson's, and Jimmy Dyke helped me with the publishing being an integral part of the firm at the time. I had felt for a long time that there was no British tutor which explained the actual problems of production so I have tried to go into basic details and add what is missing in most books, except perhaps for Phil Farkas's book uh, from the USA, because he used to be first horn of the uh, Chicago Phenomite, isn't it? Or Chicago Symphony was it called, that's right. In fact, I produced a tape of a horn and piano recital with the Australian pianist Leslie Howard, which I sort of rather half-heartedly tried to sell to record company, which they didn't bite. I should have perhaps pursued the matter further, but perhaps the, well, the Horn Society might like a copy. I could add more details and incidents, but I think this covers my overall experiences.